Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Sophie Strand, writer and academic cross-contaminator. We are talking to Sophie about the importance of listening to one's body and its unexpected ways to bring out intellectual results and eventually new academic fruits. For Sophie, storytelling was a way out of trauma and around pain and then became her academic method, allowing her to border cross paradigms and fuse ideas. We asked Sophie how to create safety in these subversive spaces and how to confront the reactions of disapproval and discontent. Sophie leads us through her story of following that sensory vein and shares the ways that could work for others as eager to improvise. Listen to this episode to reflect together on our intellectual editing processes. This episode comes with a trigger warning. During our conversation, we touch on trauma and mental health. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends. This podcast episode is actually quite a long time coming, um, but I'm sitting here today with Sophie Strand. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Karina. It's lovely to be here. Finally. Finally. I think we started this conversation almost more than a year ago during COVID, and now we finally got the schedules aligned and and for our listeners um and i think you will hear much more about sophie's work during our conversation but just to share a little bit of how we came into contact um i was part of a course um why we dance with mountains by bio Akumolafe, and and during that course i became intrigued by this kind of um people that said that this kind of un- spaces of intersection of scholarly pursuits and then kind of other pursuits that might not be deemed scholarly (laughs) by the scholarly environment, but that produce extremely interesting results. So um, I asked Bio, I said, hey, who can I interview? Like, who who is a a kind of this kind of adventurous um, other than scholar scholar? That you would recommend me to to interview, and particularly in the, in this intersection space with myth storytelling um, and um, art. And then he said, "Sophie, she's your girl." <laughs> um, and this is here we are. So um, very happy to um, to kick us off, Sophie, and kind of asking you how 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 did you tell us a little bit about yourself and how how did you find your path into um, into what you do today. Thank you for asking, and also thank you to Bio across the digital diaspora <laughs> say, for making this mycelial connection between us. Um, he's very good at that, at the cross-pollinations. Um, how did I arrive here? Um, I think that I am a compost teeth physically, by nature of having a genetic illness with no cure. So I am in the process of decay. And instead of problematizing that, I can kind of look at the ways in which my body is um, collaborating, um, disagreeing with itself, creating unruly mixtures of things that aren't supposed to mix and see if something interesting can sprout. And the best thing about the compost teeth is that it's not about planning it. It's about throwing everything on, the gross, the good, the bad, the useless, and then something happens, something grows. Um, And I think in my own life, I had parents that were 
very academic and, and really prized reading, researching, texture, primary documents. Um, they studied the history of religion and um, were really interested in how to create non-hierarchical interfaith communities. So I, I saw what it was like to have systems of thought that weren't supposed to collide overlap like that was definitely part of my upbringing and it was also very practically part of my upbringing that we rehabilitated wild animals and like the geese that we were we were rehabilitated came into the house so there were like lots of different overlaps of worlds more than human worlds insect mm. worlds fungal worlds religious worlds um and then activism and like it, like wild environmental activists coming in and talking with rabbis and Theravudan Buddhist monks while we were also rehabilitating very stinky possum babies that had to be fed every 30 minutes with an eyedropper. So that's like the, the ground of my being is this insane compost teeth of like having you know, the Mahabharata on one table and then Dogen on the other and then having my dad doing um, Buddhist chants and then Jewish um, prayers and just having all of those things intermingle. Um, however, I was a, I'm a person who loves scholarship and, and, and loves to really go deep with the texture. And when I went to school, to, to college, I'd been very ill and I got very serious and intense that my academia felt like I couldn't, I never felt like I could cure myself with my illness, didn't have a cure, but I did feel like I could, I could externalize that deferred achievement and progress in my body into academia and was really going down the route where I was going to be a medieval scholar, studying manuscripts, specifying more and more and more until no one read my work. And the thing that saved me was that I got too sick to go to grad school when I graduated. I was just too sick to go. I had to mm. put it off. I, if I had been well, I probably would have just stayed in academia. Mm. But my illness and the, and the rising sense that trauma I had experienced early in my life had precipitated this illness and made me more available to it. It made me step outside of the dominant paradigm and say, there are other epistemologies. Are there indigenous ways of knowing? Are there vegetal fungal ways of knowing? What if I'm not always mentoring myself to the system that seems like it wants to harm me and all the people I love? What if I look for mentorship outside of the academy, but also bring the academy with me? Um, and so I, I think it was unintentional, but it was because I was grounded. I couldn't go to, I couldn't go on to grad school. I couldn't totally enter into the wilderness and be a hearty, vital person in the wilderness. I was this strange, fertile boundary between both worlds. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if the question at all. What kind of drove you to that space of inquiry? Because also partly is, I think, the, the situation, right, that you just couldn't do it. So therefore, you had to find another way. But but what made the, the inquiry possible? What made the curious mind? Was, that, was it that compost heap foundation that you got... Um, that you got from your environment? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I love storytelling, and but then I also think of storytelling as being truly an emergency. Mm -hmm. um, I oftentimes summon the story of Scheherazade, who in the 1001 Nights of the Arabian Tales, she keeps the king from murdering her each night by telling a story. So this is storytelling that's adrenaline fueled. That's like an actual mm. life-saving attempt. Mm. And when I was young, very young and had experienced very intense violence and abuse, 
I came out of that and needed stories that proved that there were different worlds that were adjacent mm-hmm. possibles that could give me more meaning and show me that the world I, and compost my cynicism and mm-hmm. fear. And so the books and the stories that I received early on, they weren't just comforting, they were life-saving. They showed me that they're, you know, I think of there are these experiments they do with rats and God, the experiments they, they do with rats are just terrible in general, but there's this experiment where they put them in water endlessly and if they just put them in the water with no hope to see that they can escape they give up and die like really Mm. quickly but if they take them out of the water and show them that they could escape and put them back back in the water they'll swim for like another 20 hours it's a terrible sadistic um experiment and it shows what's wrong with material reduction science in general but it does for me really show that like if you have that view, you can survive another 30 hours of hell. And I think storytelling is that view, which is like, I'll keep swimming. I can keep doing this if I just have this sense that there's another story. And I think for me, the impulse to do the kind of weird work I've been doing is I saw lighthouses in the distance when I was younger that kept me moving and kept me moving through really, really, barren misty times Mm -hmm. and if I could possibly offer other people what I felt I had been offered um it felt like it might be important yeah I love that I I I resonate so much with what you're saying and um the ability to kind of conjure meaning right the 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 kind of that muscle in the imagination that you that makes and unmakes worlds yes you know, I think it's it's so it's such a it's such a gift to um to to have that from a young age that ability to 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 nurture worlds, new worlds, and world making. You know, what what a gift to be able to bring to the outside. You know, in in those other barren spaces of imagination. And I I mean I'm I I am the combination of all of these people who I saw doing that. Like, I think sometimes people are saying, you're doing something totally new. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I mean, no, there, there are so many people who have been those lighthouses for me. Um, you think of Donna Haraway when I first encountered her work, Bio's work. Um, I mean, even someone like Anne Rice. I, I, I love um, the work of Anne Rice because she was like, we're going to take queerness. We're going to take vampires. We're going to take incredibly intense historical research. We're going to take depression and, 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 and create these incredibly intense ecosystems of narrative that aren't just like Mm. one sterile hero's journey. I mean, I think of Anne Rice as actually being one of my lighthouses who kept Yeah. 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 And Sophie, like, I want to take us back to that moment where you were like, you know, you couldn't go to Grassfall, you couldn't go to the wilderness, and then you kind of like found another way. Mm-hmm. For um, what, what was kind of like the first intentional compost that you created, the the, the first lighthouse? Do you remember, or or it doesn't have to be the first one, but the, the the most meaningful one? I mean, I've been creating. My my friends and family joke that I have hypergraphia. Like I write all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm multiple multidisciplinary types of writing. I write academic writing, I write poetry, I write essays. It's compulsive. Maybe a problem. Um, <laughs> I think in in when I was in college, it got very narrow and I was writing these very, very sterile poems that were only oriented towards the academy and less and less accessible to people I loved and incredibly intense academic papers. And so there was all of this pressurized 
intense compulsive energy that wasn't getting expressed in me that I was, I was writing all of this stuff that wasn't as plush, as rich, as inappropriate as I wanted it to be. So I think the second that I realized that I was, I was going to have to do a different type of writing, it just exploded. And my first, um, compost heap post academia, cause I wrote a lot. I mean, I wrote fantasy novels and fan fiction and poems and hundreds of pages of writing when I was younger. Um, it was, I just wanted, decided I really, really wanted to write an eco-feminist reimagining of the gospels from Mary Magdalene's point of view that would recreate the actual historical, anthropological, and ecological context, and also problematize the story as being um, salvific. It would say, what if this was a Shakespearean tragedy and the crucifixion is the worst thing that could have possibly happened? And like really look at this from the ground level, from the people who were living inside of it. And the reason I decided to do this was I thought I was going to die. And I thought if I was going to only have time to write one last thing, I wouldn't want it to be an academic article. I wouldn't want it to be an experimental poem. I would want it to be the story that felt the most important for me to try and bring into being. And so it was a lifeline for me. I wasn't sure if I was going to live long enough to finish it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote 500 pages, I think, in four months. and then. I mean, I had done, there were like 10 years of research before this. I had known, I always known I wanted to write this book. So there was a lot of preparation, but the actual writing of it happened extraordinarily fast. Yeah. yeah. So it was also one of those things that is inside you. Yeah. Um, and then it went out uh, guided by this kind of extraordinary or the extraordinary, those circumstances, right? Or, yeah. The bottleneck. Yeah. I think, I think of these moments as being bottlenecks, which is, you know, in, in, evolution bottleneck events are climatological pressures or disasters where only the species that are most fit get through and then they explode and create the biological genetic diversity afterwards Um, and you can trace back all of the genetic lines to those survivors and I was thinking in my own life that I have these bottleneck events of health concerns where all of the superficiality gets Um, winnowed away none of it Mm. comes through with me only the things I most care about and they're very highly pressurized moments but they also bring extreme clarity about purpose yeah yeah I think that's so important you know Um, one of the things that I see so often in the in 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 myself also but but particularly in academic or high-pressured environment is almost like this this um this uh, this prison that normal normative normativizes what you can think and what can can come out of you, you know. Yeah. And um, I often think, you know, what can we do to to create these moments, liminal spaces, uh, or structures of that that liberate? Um, what type of knowledge then would that would that produce? What would come out of those people? What would they compost if you remove those those kind of barriers that that are might, uh, that that puts their mind on on such a on such a just one path? You know? Um, yeah. I think about this too, um, and it's I, I am someone who loves taking classes and loves mm-hmm. listening to lectures and. Yeah, I, 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 I have no purity about these things. I think it's all about the cross-contamination. It's about the ways we diffuse into each other. Um, I'd like to contaminate the academy. 
I've always said that I, I said to my mother after I'd been, after I was halfway through this book, I realized I could never go back to grad school, that the work I wanted to do was too big for, for that container. And so I was saved by this experience, but it took a while for me to see it. And what I said to her is I said, I think I would like to teach in academia, but I want to go through the back door. <laughs> I want, and so whatever that means is like, I would love to have the opportunity to um, pollute people's minds with my unruly um, microbial mysticism and my inappropriate research methods. But I, I but I want to get, I don't want to have to get a degree to do that and pay more money and more time that I might not have. If I'm going to do it, I want to enter through um, the trap door. Yeah. I, I remember um, I read um, many years back while I was still studying anthropology, I read Purity and Danger. Is a, I'm not sure if you if you know the book. It's an American anthropologist, um, I think Mary uh, Douglas, or if I'm not completely I mistaken. Parts of it. Yeah. No, because I've been very interested in purity. I, I mean, mm. I know one of my favorite books. Have you encountered Alexis Shotwell's Against Purity? No. Oh, I incredible. have to write it down. Oh, but, yeah. But continue um, what you were saying. Yeah, she, she talks about um, what does it mean for something to be pure? And, and you know, it reminded me a lot reading Bios. Um, she, he has one article on Medium where he talks about the prison, you know, like the then Batman, when you go into the pit. And, and what does it mean to try to fight the system while actually insert, in, internalizing the system itself? Exactly. Right. Like being pure to a certain extent also means that you are aligned to a certain code, that you are you are kind of... Um, um, already tamed by the by the structures that be, um, so I, I'm interesting because there, there's also this thing around contamination that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, right? You're not contaminating something to destroy it; you're contaminating something to to make it more free, you know, to to liberate them to a certain extent to a different version of themselves that they might not know otherwise. How, I'm, I'm very curious, Sophie, if you've done anything, like are there any kind of mini compost heaps emerging in, in this kind of um, uh, attempts of contamination or, or, or it's still you're still um, you're still in the kind of a dreaming up, dreaming up stage? Well, I think that my writing and all the all the books that <laughs> I've done are these inappropriate combinations of methodologies and research and, and mm -hmm. information that, you know, I, I'm talking about you know, ancient monotheistic storm gods, but I'm using, you know, modern science about spore cycles and fungal mm -hmm. systems. And, you know, and, and, and in, in either direction, you could say this was an inappropriate combination. And yet that's what I'm, I'm drawn to combine, to combine. And if we actually, I mean, the thing I'm interested in is the very basis of our cells are an inappropriate union between these early um, single cells, single mm -hmm. bacteria that then, you know, half digested each other and merged to create complex nucleated cells that, you know, we think of evolution as being this constant forking, but actually the most biological novelty happens from these transversal anarchic intimacies from fusing. And it's moments when species fuse like lichen, which are the composite of algae and fungi and bacteria. It's when you step into something else's body inappropriately. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the very basis of biological novelty and resilient ecosystems are inappropriate intimacies between species, um, you know, collaborations that live somewhere right between parasitism and mutualism and might tip into either at both at any moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that I try and do that in my work. I try and risk 
doing the wrong thing to see if something more interesting can happen, risk being changed. Um, and right now I, I, I've been, te- been offered a bunch of opportunities to teach. And in those spaces, I really want to make sure that I am offering a lot of different ways into knowledge and not just relying on this Eurocentric model of I am the teacher giving a teaching. And in fact, one of the things I always want to say is if I've taught you well, you won't think of me as your teacher. You will have a mentor that is out in your backyard. Like if, if I'm teaching you, I'm teaching you how to ask other beings to teach you. Um, that's the only transmission I feel like I really have is like we are so focused on human teachers and gurus and outsourcing our intuition and our um, animacy to these lionized figures. And if anything, I want to say that this is not the moment to look for human beings for advice. It's the moment to look to the potato bug in your apartment, the invasive species outside your door, the weird smell. You don't know where it's coming from. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm curious because you, you talked, um, you talked about the, um, these forms of expressions via stories and, and, and kind of, um, um, creating stories, and now you talk about teaching. Are there are kind of, are these the main forms that you you kind of like use to 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 express nowadays, or are there any other forms that you are contemplating or experimenting with? I as I'm a, I do too much. So I write. Mm-hmm. I the way I actually pretty much put myself through college was I my dad is a haiku poet. That's one of the things he does. He teaches haiku poetry for many 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 years. And I was raised writing poetry. So I write a lot of poems and I used to win a lot of poetry prizes, which is how I supported myself as a young writer, a very young writer. Um, so I write poems constantly. I, my main love is long format historical fiction that is queer and ecological and like tries mm-hmm. to like pour a heteronormative romance into a lichenized form. Um, and right now I'm, I'm dreaming towards my next long format fiction project, which is about a, ecological retelling of Tristan and Isolde, um, which is the it basically the basis of the Arthurian myths. And but the thing is, I really don't think you can write about a place until you've been there. So I need to go spend time in Ireland and England in order to do this. So that's like a five year plan. And I'm finishing a book of essays that are really what you're talking about. It's this inappropriate merging of science and philosophy and poetry and myth and then personal narrative and trauma and saying like, you know, can we heal beyond the human? Can we heal beyond hope? Um, So lots of different writing happening. And yeah, I mean, I never thought I would be a teacher. I never thought I have a lot of imposter syndrome about that. And I've been offered a lot of options to teach and I feel incredibly honored to enter into spaces with people. And I think that as I do that more, I hope that I can find more and more subversive, magical ways to create ecosystems rather than hierarchical situations. And um, maybe a weird question, Sophie, but um, how do you create safety in those subversive spaces or or do you need to create safety for yourself or no? I mean, I think mm. safety is is a human myth. Um, I'm unsafe. I don't have, um, you know, degrees that t- that will assure you that I can normalize your experience, make you feel safe. That, you know, I always think of the line in Narnia about Aslan. Not that I endorse C.S. Lewis at all, but I, I always think of this line, which is, 
Lucy is asking one of the beavers about this Aslan lion figure. And she goes, is he safe? She goes, safe? Goodness, no. But he is good. <laughs> and I think that we, oftentimes safety is a way of, of keeping within oppressive systems. That's, that, that oppression is often actually articulated as safety. And in order to make the leap into more interesting mm -hmm. um, relationships, you have to risk feeling the danger. Um, so, I mean, I want to create, I want to create spaces where we're being more safe to our environment, but that may actually necessitate us feeling unsafe together. Yeah. So a little bit towards like staying with the trouble, right? Like practicing exactly. staying with the trouble, yeah. um, in the space that you're trying to disrupt, like yeah. you. Yeah. And how do you do that? How do you cultivate, um, that practice, um, Sophie? Hmm. I mean, this is always a process. I, I don't have any kind of prescription or answer. I think actually it's it's living the question rather than the one thing I would say is I think we all need to learn how to ask questions mm. of each other and of animals and also learn how to ask questions in a bodily way and know that the answers we're going to receive aren't always going to be what someone's saying. It's how they're physically responding to us. And um, so I, I think this is this is I'm learning right now. Mm -hmm. uh, how to create these these situations and I'm not sure if I'm good at it yet actually I think I'm probably quite bad at it um <laughs> and I think that you have to be quite bad at something to learn how to do it well to learn how, to just know how to do something is to not know anything at all actually um it's through these these mistakes and these complications um I do think that because everyone has you know everyone is bringing trauma to the table right now and their own complex stories. And so the one thing I want to do is to let everyone know that we're all going to be triggered by each other. And when those moments to happen to just like feel it, move it, note it and keep, and keep making that stories don't happen in one node of experience. They happen in that friction, that gradient yeah. in different ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always find striking, like like listening to you in the kinship course um, that 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 just finished a few um, a few beautiful weeks ago, which was wonderful. You you spoke a lot about um, that what for that fermentation from that composting to happen, you have to cross the boundaries into each other. You have to you have to go beyond relationality as a kind of a, a me um, talking to you at a safe distance for you. It's about entering into contact, right? Yeah. So I, I, I wonder if, if safety is not something that you need to practice, what do you need to enter into contact in a way that produces that juicy fermentation, that wonderful composting between um, between entities? I, I think actually I keep coming to the word risk lately, which is think about those first bacteria that fused. They did not unfuse. This was a um, permanent incursion bodily incursion mm -hmm. that over millions of years produced human beings and trees and animals but what was it like to be that first bacteria that fused its body i think that there right now there's a certain kind of bodily physical practical riskiness that we have to do that's about the general aliveness rather than our own particular aliveness mm -hmm. and i'm very inspired by um philosopher and scientist andreas Weber's Weber's work about this, which is there is an aliveness of the world, but it is not about my survival. Like 
my usefulness is made to the general aliveness may not be about my survival. It may be about something much bigger. And I think that these contact zones may be permanent, like to fuse with another species, to make your, to wed yourself to a species that's going to extinct to an, a landscape that's polluted may have irreversible sedimentations in your body. You know, it, it, it may change you forever. And I think that we have to take those risks that we're going to be changed irreversibly. Yeah, that is wonderful. And and I think that one thing that you talked about there made me think um, about this kind of like the individuate itself, right? If if you kind of hold so much attachment to this entity and the ego and yourself as a single entity, it's 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 much more difficult to enter into the spaces of composting, of relationality. Uh, it's much more difficult to say yes to the risk, I think. Yeah. Uh, because it, what would come at the end of it is a dissolution of this big, big, uh, special um, self that is just you. I think um, I, I've been also, as, as a result of the Kinshin Corp, I'm diving now deeper into the work of, was it Stephen Jenkinson that, that wrote yeah. the, the Die Wise? Yeah. Yeah, and it fascinated me, like something that, that what he said resonates with what you said also in the course. He says that, you know, like when you are in the presence and, the, and you know, in the last, he has this um, a tremendous body of work around uh, end of life and he worked in palliative care for a long time and then he wrote his beautiful book, Die Wise. But he, he says he got he got very uh, fascinated with the fact that at the end, when, when death comes for people, there is this kind of presence that kind of breaks everything down. Like you cannot... Um, you you cannot live according to these normative uh, cages anymore, and then you're in the presence of something that is bigger. Um, and and I think that there, you know, like like those kind of like walls of the individual, they just broke down naturally. But how cool would that be if you are able to break those um, yourself and enter into these spaces of contact um, more naturally? Yeah, I mean, I I something I've been offering lately is people who've experienced violence and trauma and abuse have had the very intense experience of, of, of porosity and mm -hmm. intercorporality. And they've experienced the ways in which their individuality is not sterilely um, bounded and can be um, violated. And that is a problem and changes us irreversibly. It, it, it works its way and dances through our nervous systems but it also shows us something which is that we are flowing into and out of each other we are doorways for matter and mm. also our minds aren't necessarily kept in our brains you know maybe they're a little leakier a little bit more promiscuous and i i want to say that this is a moment when we can look to the neurodivergent and to people with ptsd and trauma and disabilities lessons on how to understand and work with that complicated risky um porosity yeah that, that's that's wonderful because then you're really you're really kind of flipping this kind of like normal narrative around what it means to 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 um to go through this type of experiences and have the gifts that they they bring you also together with what you've been going through i am um, i was i was thinking to ask you maybe again maybe it's a stupid question for which i apologize but i want because i got i got I, it made me think when you talked about poems and writing poems and and um i i was thinking what what is beauty to you sophie and and in 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 where do you find it where is be beauty is everywhere hmm. what is beauty 
gosh. Beauty is anything that that hurts to not look at. Um, I mean, I think the world is just a concatenation of beauty and that beauty is actually the flip side of sorrow and pain and agony. And that, you know, Tolkien writes a lot about this idea of like, what is it? He says like the, the miracle is made a miracle by that moment where it could have not happened. (laughs) You could not have been saved that, that it's the kind of joy that is shaped and um, molded by sorrow and by tragedy and by meaninglessness. So it's that, you know, for me, I always think of it. I, I have these moments where I get very, very ill. I usually like they're, intense nausea moments that are caused by serious allergic reactions paired with very bad autoimmunity and they kind of erase my brain and when I come out of them the freshness of the world is so exquisite because of what happened right before that everything is beautiful it's a bad answer I I I just I I think that it's beauty has more to do with contrast than it has to do with content yeah yeah yeah, and I think I think it's um, you. It's it's how from what do you look at something, right? From what position? From what place? From 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 what is the space of inquiry? Uh, and I think that that kind of like the same place can look so so ultimately different and other. Yeah, I um, it reminds me of that poem of the Rainer Maria Rilke's poem when she when when he talks about the, the uh, it starts with the listen. I don't I don't know it by heart, but it, it's one of the most beautiful poems that I've that I've ever read. You know, especially the the part at the end where he said, and I asked myself, am I a, am I a poem? Am I a falcon? Or am I a great song? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am so terrible. <laughs> he's he's one of the best poets I think I've ever read. Um. I mean, he's the one who says you have to live the question, which is what I always say. I quote him all the time in so many different ways. Um, Yeah, yeah. So I I, I, um, read an essay by somebody that, 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 that said at the same time that what made him really good is that he permanently lives in that space of inquiry. And, and in the space of inquiry, uh, in that space, everything is possible all the time. And uh, I think, I think the question I think living inside this interrogative mindset is also a kind of animism mm-hmm. because when you're, when you're asking questions of the world, you're expecting a world that can dialogue and that will answer back and change your mind. And I think that we live in a very material reductionist way where the kind of science we do is about having an idea of the results you're going to get, having that kind of bias and then getting the results you expected. And, and that's just kind of, a, you know, we're just confirming the, the our own projections again and mm-hmm. again and again. And I think that, yeah, beauty is about risking asking a question to the air, not seeing anything and then hearing a voice back. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm assuming here, but but bear with mm-hmm. me, but uh, uh, be, um, um, exploring and, and being comfortable with that space and inquiry risk taking, does that bring you closer to others just like you? Like, because uh, does that help you find easier other compost heapers, other, other kind I'm of so strange... <laughs> Here we are together. I can yeah. ask you the question, right? 
Yeah, because I, I think I think a lot of time, like this kind of people that are a little bit different, you're right, that you are in, you know, coming back again to the scholar and, and trying to do different things in the academic space. At times, it can be also very lonely if you leave your questions on the inside only, you know? Yeah, and there are a lot of sirens. So speaking of the unexpected and the incursion, I think I'm going to take us to another room. I think that when I was doing very, very straight academic work and winning academic prizes and narrowing my life, but also progressing down the path I was supposed to, I had a lot of allies, mm. a lot of accolades. And I think that when I've started to do this riskier work, there have been people who are much more passionate about it and then people who really hate it. Mm. <laughs> so I do think it's important to note that, like, you know, I'm not for everyone. And you shouldn't be for everyone. And if you're trying to be for everyone, there's some way that you're homogenizing what you're offering and, and, and sanitizing it. Um, so I've, I've noticed, I've thought it quite interesting to see who is nourished by this and who is not, who does not like it. Mm-hmm. And the, the answer has, does not fall neatly along academic and non-academic. Many of my allies and most interesting collaborators are academics and people who mm-hmm. are really inside the academy. Um, but then there are people who really don't like it. Um, yeah. And how, 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 how does that make you feel? Like, well, what does it provoke in you when, when that kind of shift happened between, uh, yeah, the then and the now? I think that I, I think I always felt like I was betraying myself when I was writing work that followed the rules. Mm. But I always had a deep sense. And I think this has to do with the illnesses. I'm a little bit superstitious. Mm. And I think that I always knew that, you know, we our bodies register what we're doing with our minds. And mm-hmm. if I was constantly editing and, and repressing myself intellectually, there that must somehow be playing out in my body. And because my body does so poorly and has so many issues, there was a certain point where I thought this is probably not very good for my body. <laughs> so I think that I it's felt very scary to be myself in a public way, especially you know, as someone who's been through trauma to speak, I was told by my abusers that if I spoke, I would die and my parents would be killed. And I was very deeply convinced of this in ways that I won't share. But I, I th- in, on a deep nervous system, early childhood level, I was convinced that to speak, to be authentic was to risk dying. So there's been in, in, as I've talked about trauma, as I've done things that are much messier, more publicly, it's been terrifying and I've mm. felt that terror through my whole body, but it's also felt like perhaps the only way through that to not do that was to push it down even deeper into my body. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It, Thank you it, for asking. <laughs> yeah. It, um, it really resonates so deeply with me and, and I'm, I will share maybe a more super, uh, it's not such a, a profound story, but for me, it really felt quite profound because I have this, also this very deep, imposter syndrome with academia and I've been shoving down a lot of stuff that I want to do in academia because I just felt so inappropriate to do that in that space and um, a few weeks ago I managed to organize a conference in at the University of Amsterdam who's a very kind of uh, quite a big space of academic inquiry yeah. in the Netherlands and I invited almost 30 academics to sense make through play and conflict yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah anthrop- yeah um, so so 
sense making through relationality, right, um, and through play, instead of talking um, from their papers and their cognitive mind. So I invited them into this space, almost a full day at the University of Amsterdam that that I, together with others, organized. But we were looking for. Uh, I wanted to invite Donna Haraway to be our keynote speaker, and she she's now she's not speaking too much nowadays, so she she couldn't make it. And then we couldn't find another. Um, we couldn't find a keynote speaker um, like Donna. And then the organizing team said, hey, Corina, why don't you keynote? Like, like you're the one that kind of made this. You're, it, it came from your head. Like, why not? And the, just the thought of speaking in front of those people, just I just couldn't do it. I started uh, hyperventilating when I heard it the first time. And then I ended up doing it. But the, 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 the sheer feeling of horror... You know, uh, before I started talking at that table, um, at the beginning of the call, I still remember it. Um, and then at the end, I just got, just like you said earlier, this kind of like mixed bag, like people that really, really loved it and people that really, really hated it. But then then the feeling of being truly authentic to your own expression, it just felt so wonderful. You know, I just didn't realize I, w- I was telling my uh, the professor that is my partner in crime in this afterwards. I just didn't realize in, in how um, in how many ways I was silencing myself until after that moment. You know, isn't I mean that congratulations. I'm so glad <laughs> you were the speaker. Um, yes. I mean, there's a certain moment where you have to say, OK, it's time for me to do this to share what messy information I have and see if it can help. Because um, to keep it all to yourself is also yeah. selfish. I mean, that's how I've been trying to, to to because I'm horrified also. I mean, people think that it's easy for me to speak, but like I've been forcing myself to speak to so many people because of how hard it is. Because mm-hmm. I keep thinking that if I do this, it will normalize. Um and to hold it all in is to be selfish. I need to share if, you know, I'm here because people, unruly people with no degrees and no authority shared what seeds they had managed to gather and that saved me. So yeah. I should pass that along. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's wonderful. Just, just, um, and I, and I found wonderful your reflection of what, what does it do to you to not be yourself fully? Yeah. You know, like the, the, those kind of like the self self inflict. What, how heavy the silence is, and how 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 much more other effects it has on you. So, um, yeah, I find that very beautiful, and 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 that type of realization. And I see it in myself constantly. I see it in other academics. Is one of the reasons why I started this podcast as a kind of a little mm-hmm. subversive space where, mm-hmm. you know, there was no list of questions, and that triggered a lot of people at the beginning. What What do you mean? I don't need to prepare. Uh, what do you mean you don't have questions um, that are prepared? So, but it is as I yeah I think. It's it's so great where others like you and and I've also met others they they are so irreverent in just holding space, and then in doing mm-hmm. so you 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 infect people with your irreverence you know. Yeah, I it's so funny. Yeah, I I think you know survivors of trauma want stable value systems. They want a list of questions. They want to be able to control the variables to be able to take care of their nervous systems. That's who I am. I would love a list of questions. But what I've been forcing myself to do is saying we're in an age of incredibly increasingly unpredictable climatological events and social chaos. <laughs> so maybe the muscle I need to exercise is not knowing what the questions are and being able to dance. <laughs> and being, like improvisation. And I think just to circle way back to what your question was earlier, 
about how to create interesting spaces. I've been thinking about improv and my friend who does improv was saying that when you go into an improv stage, it's not about what doing the right thing. It's about making the choice that's going to be the most interesting. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about how, how can we create spaces where the most interesting thing is going to happen and mm-hmm. improvise together in a way that, that doesn't, isn't right or wrong, isn't predictable, can't be planned for, but might make us more ecologically and socially resilient. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, the kind of like a trickster space, right? That that yeah. that puts you in kind of that playful, playful um, energy. Yeah. To to dance with whatever it is in that moment that will emerge. That's wonderful. I I was thinking, Sophie, because you talked um, you talked on how for you the the disease was a was a kind of a a trigger for everything. Yeah to emerge out of you. I, I wonder for those of our listeners that's, that's, that have not experienced the gift of, of something like that in their lives, what would be some practices or some thoughts that you would have? Um, and I include myself also in that box. <laughs> how do you, how do you, um, how do you, how do you practice that state of being without having this wonderful um, door opener? Well, I think all of us are, We're all living in bodies that are the photo negative of ecosystems that no longer exist. Like evolution happens so slowly, but that by the time a hand arrives, the world it was made to touch is doesn't exist anymore. But by virtue of that evolutionary material entanglement, that mutuality, we are built to investigate and shift and adapt to actual environments. All of us, no matter what trauma we've experienced, are ecologically embedded and created. And so I, I want to offer that each of us has some kind of sensory portal that we're key to, that we're very visual people. We notice smells, we notice tastes, you know, sometimes cooks, chefs, herbalists, people are very good at, at the biosemiotic fluency of tastes and smell mm. and flavors. And so I think that Right now, there's a kind of intense pressure to become environmentally aware and ecologically educated, and it can feel oppressive. And I, I mostly just encourage people to follow what you love and follow that sensory vein that is the connective tissue between you and what you need to be in relationship with. It's going to be different for each person. Um, and it's not about becoming perfect and becoming this totally like receptive tentacular, like ecologically mm-hmm. awake person. It's like, maybe you're just keyed to one plant and, and that's really, you, you're not good at noticing other things, but you're very, you're really good at, you're always noticing this weed in this city. That's like growing up between the concrete, like, cause we don't need to be in our precious little gardens. We, it can happen in a city that you're always noticing that there's this sedge, like there's this one type of, of grass that's growing. And then maybe you do a little research about that grass. What, mm. What's its history? What's my relationship to it? Why does it want my attention? And I, so the one thing I would say is what you love, loves you back. What is catching your attention wants your attention. There's this mutual mutuality between you and what you notice. Oh, that's so beautiful. 
that's so beautiful to kind of like what it does to me is kind of thinking hey um you are tied to the world in a myriad of ways uh, pay attention to where that where that kind of like connection pulls on you tugs you yeah. right um, and and now it's so beautiful to kind of like like live from that space of connectivity rather than from the space of the singularity of what makes you you, you know? I want to add one of my favorite things is I heard Tyson Yunkaporta say recently, like, there's actually not that much in here. It's all here. Yeah. We, we think that there's a self inside of us, but our self is really just all of these different relationships. <laughs> That's yeah. where it lives. It lives in the in-between. And I just yeah. love that. Yeah, me too. And any other any other last thoughts that you want to share with our audience? Oh, I'm just honored to be here. I mean, I, I, this feels a year ago, I had just started putting this work out into the world. And so to be here now just feels like so inappropriate in the best way possible. <laughs> so thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Sophie. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.